Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years. And who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. Let's officially start. All right, play the music. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello! And welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where two book nerds talk about movies that were based on books as well as the original source material. We will answer questions like, how are these two interpretations the same? How are they different? And are they worth your time? Before we discuss today's book and movie combo, we want to remind you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Pages and Popcorn Podcast. We also want to remind you that you're welcome to email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to our shows on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. Woohoo! As all positive ratings are greatly appreciated. That's right. And you can listen to us directly on our website, which is pagesandpopcornpodcast.com. Today we will be discussing The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle, which was a novel published in 1968, feature film released in 1982. And since Jennifer picked this, she is going to do the recap. Okay, but first off... Oh yes, let's hear your story. All right, my story is kind of the standard one. I saw this in the theater. I fell in love. It was my childhood favorite film for the longest time. It was my favorite book. And that's how most fans of the book and the movie are. You know, they discover it and they fell in love. And it's one of those that it sticks with you, even as a child. And then as you watch as an adult, it's so much better. It's one of those rare childhood loves that does not commit nostalgicide. You read the book as an adult? I read the book as an adult. I watched the movie a lot as a kid. Um, so anyone who's a parent, you know that your child loves to watch the same thing over and over and over again. They love to read the same books over and over. That's one of the films for me. This is one of those... I had on repeat for the longest time. And so coming back to it, it's really hard to analyze it just because I'm so overly familiar with it. I came to it a little bit differently. It came out in 1982, so I didn't see it in the theater, but I think I was about 
four or five, and it was on VHS. They used to play it at the daycare where I was. I don't have a lot of memories of this place, but I remember that at a very specific time every day, and I think it was probably like four or four thirty or something, they would plunk us all down with our goldfish crackers, or actually, I kind of vaguely want to say that they were saltines, whatever. And we would watch The Last Unicorn before our parents would come and pick us up. And my mom would always come to pick us up right at the point where they were going into the clock. So I didn't have any a lot of memories of this movie. I had some vague. I had a memory about the tree. I had a memory about people in a woods. I had a memory about the the thing that I didn't know was called a harpy, but I had a memory of that. And then I had a memory of them kind of in this clock, and that was it. And so that was it. I didn't really connect it. I kind of thought maybe I'd made up these memories as a kid. And then we were in a grocery store. I think I was 19 or 20, and I saw it. You know, they had it in the $5 bin somewhere. And I was like, oh, that was a real thing. And people were like, oh, yeah, that movie was so great. Or that movie was really scary or whatever. And I was like, okay, whatever. Years later, I had a friend named Allison who said, oh, you have to see this movie. It's my favorite movie. And so we watched it. And I don't know if I was just not in the right mental scape. thought it was highly entertaining. But I don't think I was laughing at the parts you're supposed to laugh at. I think also we were drinking. That might have that might have been a part <laughs> of this. But for a long time, the walking man's road was like, our joke. And again, there was probably a fair amount of alcohol involved. Well, and so, okay. So that was my kind of impression. I was like, okay, whatever. It's a movie and it's, it's good or bad or whatnot. But people that I respect keep saying how amazing it is. And I think, oh, I should probably revisit it. Then you pitched it for this. And I was like, okay, based on a book. Sure, sure. So I read the book first because mm. I, I tend to like to do that. I have my thoughts on the book, which we'll get to in a minute. And then I watched the movie um, for this. And I'm, I'm really glad you picked it. So I guess spoilers towards the <laughs> end here, but I I, I'm glad that I spent my time I was going to say, you hit on one of the themes, is that even if you're dead drinking, it's still awesome. <laughs> yes. Okay, so now let's get to the recap. So the people who, if there's anybody out there who's not read the book, probably a fair number of you, but if any of you out there have not seen the movie also, we will do the recap so you'll know what we're talking about when we talk about it. All right. So the screenplay was also done by Peter S. Beagle, and that's one of the reasons why it is so accurate to the book. Right. So our recap's going to be uh, reflective of that. You're going to mm. recap the book. And then we're going to kind of talk about the main changes because most of the movie was the same as the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Go ahead. So in the book, we start off with two human hunters are passing through a forest. We have the unicorn introduced as a creature that lives in a lilac forest, and she's kind of alien. She's very different. She's ethereal. And as the two hunters are passing, they can't find anything to hunt. It's always spring, and they realize, well, you know, this is the land of a unicorn. We're not going to find anything. One of them doesn't believe in unicorns at all. The other one has a vague memory of his grandmother seeing one. Um, as they leave, the older hunter calls out a warning and says, stay where you are. The rest of them are gone. Worried and terrified, the unicorn decides to leave her home. As she's traveling through different landscapes, different places, she meets a butterfly who's a lot of fun. Fun trivia fact, the butterfly is an author insert of Peter S. Beagle. Oh, yeah. So the butterfly is just full of whimsy, gives like little bits of sound bites and songs and poems and whatnot. But he does sober up enough to give her a warning about the red bull and says, this is where all the unicorns have been. Then we get to some human interaction and nobody recognizes the unicorn. They all think of she's just a white mare and very pretty, but just a white 
horse. So there's a lot of magic that's disappeared from the world. Enter Mommy Fortuna. This is voiced by Angela Lansbury, who has a fantastic job handmade it up. She captures the unicorn with uh, the help of Smendrick the Magician and her little henchman. While they're in the carnival, Smendrick goes over and talks to the unicorn and he says, you know, look at all these animals and look with your sight. You're a unicorn. You're special. You know, the manticore is really a lion. You know, the satyr is just kind of an ape that's hanging around who has a twisted foot. The only thing that was really, really sad was the spider who started believing in the illusion and so she thought she was weaving the world as arachnia from the Greek myths. And I never thought I'd feel sad for a spider slightly, you know, weeping silently in the back. And the only other creature that's real is Selenio the Harpy. Uh, this creature is sort of the yin to the unicorn jang. Um, this is the dark side of magic while the unicorn is the bright. And Mommy Fortuna does a little bit of magic herself. She is basically death. And this is the only creature that makes the unicorn feel mortal at this point. Yeah, I'm not as good at this as you are. <laughs> so... The, the unicorn is stuck in iron. She doesn't like it. Uh, the unicorn is freed after Smendrick just can't do magic very well and, you know, pulls out some keys. The unicorn saves the harpy and the harpy kills off Mommy Fortuna and her henchman. Smendrick, because he helped the unicorn, uh, asks for a boon and that is to travel with her. On their travels, uh, he tells her a little about the Red Bull. There's all these myths. They don't know where it comes from, what the connection is with Haggard. It's just that these two were connected in some odd way. Enter uh, the... Band of Merry Men, who's held by uh, Captain Cully. So Captain Cully really, really wants to be the the actual Robin Hood, though he detests the legend of Robin Hood, and he has some very interesting lines about this. So Smedrick actually, for the first time, does a little bit of magic, and he makes the apparition of Robin Hood and of the Merry Men appear, and so all of Captain Cully's you know, rather ragtag and depressed group of not merry minstrels run after Robin Hood, wanting to be part of that life. And Captain Cully is the only one who isn't taken in by this and is one henchman. So they tie Smendrick up to a tree and the tree falls in love with him. This is done slightly different in the movie. Yes, we will revisit. But <laughs> yes, keep going. Okay, the unicorn sets uh, Smendrick free. Molly greets the unicorn, yells at it a bit, um, and then says she forgives it. And this is one of the great scenes. So, as they're traveling, uh, they go to Hagsgate, which is the area right near Haggard's place. Hagsgate is under a curse. So, Haggard hired a witch to make his castle. However, he didn't pay the witch. And so, the witch decided to curse Hagsgate with prosperity. They have tremendous amounts of money. They have huge bounties whenever they farm. And they can't enjoy any of it. Part of the curse, they know, is that one of their own is going to be part of their destruction. So they know this fortune is going to end. And as a result, nobody has children. And they did have one child. They left it out in the winter and the cats came over and protected it. King Haggard adopted this child. 20 years later, that turns into Prince Lear. As they travel to King Haggard's, they have their first encounter with the Red Bull. The unicorn panics, runs about, and Smedric changes her into a human. This is massively traumatizing to her. So Smedric's really happy. He's done magic for the first time. Yay for him. There's a unicorn who's absolutely destined just devastated. And she's got some of these lines, so I can feel my body dying. I'm mortal. How could you done this to me? So they go to the castle. They need to find the unicorns. They need to solve these puzzles. Smedric makes his way into King Hadrig's court. Molly works as a scholarly maid and they 
kind of drift in and out and learn different things. King Lear, or not King Lear, Prince Lear falls in love with the unicorn. And one of the great ironies of this is he's constantly trying to do good deeds and he becomes a hero to impress her and she's completely unimpressed by him. And it's not until he sings a song to try and cheer her up that she actually goes, okay, maybe he's worthwhile. Note to nice guys. Singing works better than killing dragons. The end. Although, okay, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I okay, but he does have a great line of, well, she's crying and he doesn't know what to do because, you know, most women, if they're crying, the way to, to make them not cry is to kill something. <laughs> that doesn't work with her. Molly is unimpressed with that answer as well, I think. But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, so as we're in the castle, they have to find the clues. The cat is the most helpful creature. And here we have another minor theme that cats are always dicks. This cat is so unhelpful. It gives well, riddles. Okay, the other cat saved Prince Lear from dying. Okay, but the cats are kind of jerks. I think cats are pragmatic and self-serving. <laughs> <laughs> they're very cool, but they're dicks. <laughs> wrong with a good dick every now and then? I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> like all dicks, they're self-serving. And No, no, sorry. I've met a lot of nice dicks in my life. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, moving, moving on. on. <laughs> So, they find the clues, they find the skull. It's not a skeleton, it's a skull. They have it drink the wine itself, it's a little bit of trickery, and they escape through the clock. This goes into the tunnel of the Red Bull. Unbeknownst to them, Lear follows them through the passageway. Smedric turns the unicorn back into the unicorn. The bull uh, is going to attack her, she's afraid, and... Smendrick has these lines of, you know, you're the hero, Lear. You need to go protect her. She can't do much by herself and she's going to end up in the sea unless you do something. So Lear goes in front of the bull and it crushes him. It completely crushes him. Like, you know, red sand. Smush. Lear. Smush Lear. Yeah. Lear is smushed. Uh, The unicorn finds the courage to force the bull into the sea. What what was the bull doing to the unicorn? Oh, the bull um, pushes the unicorns into the sea because this is the one thing that makes Hagrid happy. And nothing else in the world makes him happy except for the unicorns. Uh, The unicorn pushes the red bull into the sea. This forces all the other unicorns out. As they run out, they trample uh, King Hagrid's castle. It falls into dust. The curse, I suppose, curse of Hagsgate is gone and they have lost their prosperity. So, 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 she, so the unicorns leave the sea, leave the bull behind. And, and our unicorn brings Lear back to life because she's a unicorn and she's magic and she can do stuff like that. The unicorn visits Smendrick and Molly in their dreams to say goodbye. So Lear at the end of this is all very bitter because she doesn't even talk to him to say goodbye. She just leaves. He's devastated and kind of goes off and says, I'm never going to be happy. And that's kind of life. The unicorn says goodbye, goes back to her forest and Smendrick and Molly decide to travel together. There is some hints at a romance, although it's not explicit. And that's the end. Pretty much. That's the end. However, um, there is kind of a cute little moment where there's a princess in distress and she comes up and says, oh my god, they want my, my uncle wants me to marry this awful person and they've taken my castle, blah blah blah. And Smendrick says, oh, I know somebody for you. There's a hero. His name's Lear. Go run up and get him. And so, you know, Lear is not going to be devastated for the rest of his life, is hinted. Yes. <sighs> I have not had enough coffee and so my summary is terrible. <laughs> My apologies. No, it's fine. It's fine. Differences, there aren't many. Uh, one of them is Butterfly visits Unicorn before she goes on her travels, and he is kind of the one that 
this sort of pushes her in that direction. The Red Bull drove them to the sea and followed behind them, <laughs> covering up their footprints. The Harpy is much different. In the book, the Harpy has the face of an old woman and the body of a vulture. In the movie, this is done a little bit differently. Well, yeah, she's kind of all vulture creepy thing. I think. But with human boobs. Three of them. Yeah, well, you know, because we have to make it monstrosorous. Monstrosorous. Mon- so the thing with harpies monstrous. is... Monstrous. Harpies are never given a really great description, just that they're part hag and part bird, so you don't know what percentage is what percentage. Well, um, I'm going to say that two out of the three tits belong to the woman part, and then... Yeah, but birds don't have breasts. They don't <laughs> they have memory glands, I'll say. Okay. I was like, wait a minute. Wait. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Jennifer's really smart. But, okay, birds don't have nipples. There we go. <laughs> they don't have pendulous memory lines. That's true. All right. I really want to make a witch's teat joke right now, and I can't quite find the way to do it. <laughs> Apparently, I need more coffee, too. Okay, so in the movie, Hagsgate is completely taken out. Mm-hmm. Which was disappointing because I thought that it had an interesting little moral message. I think it there. would have made the movie a little too long, though. The movie was already long enough. Yeah. So, you know, there's some interesting choices with that. Sure. Yeah, the romance is almost pretty much the romance. The cat is more of a pirate in the movie. It is a kid's movie. Yeah. Uh, They're going to have a talking cat. Give it an eye patch. Kids yeah, love that the, sort the of thing. The skull is a skeleton instead of just a skull. And in the book, the skull warns them to run away because he's going to have to raise the alarm. And so in the, yeah, in the movie, he yeah. doesn't warn them. He just does. Yeah. yeah. So he says, smash me because I, they're going to do this. I feel like the most major difference hmm. is Smedric. Smedric is played very differently. Yeah. In the in the book, he's um, old. Or young, his face is lined, like he's been around, he's got a backstory, he's immortal until he can become a true he's magician. Got a lot of youth to him. He looks surprisingly oh, yeah. young. But but I mean he's been through some stuff. Oh, like, yeah. you know, so the, his whole immortality is completely, completely cut out in the yeah. movie. And then in the movie he's very bumbling and I mean he's Rocky. obviously a cartoon. <laughs> so cartoonist. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I I found him fine in the movie until I'd read about him in the book, and then I was like, Oh, I I don't know if that was he was voiced by Ellen Arkin. I think the voice matched the, the drawing, but... The interpretation is different. Beagle is not happy with that one. He said that Arkin sounded flat to him. Yeah, well, I, I, I just... And I think maybe actually if it had not been drawn quite so cartoony, it wouldn't mm. have felt so cartoony. Because there was a lot of funny self-deprecating humor and some little mumbles asides and stuff. And But we lost some of the humor with Smendrick. Actually, I have a quote because it was really funny. Just the, the way that he and Molly were characterized. Okay, the magician stood erect, menacing the attackers with demons, metamorphoses, paralyzing ailments, and secret judo holds. Molly picked up a rock. I was just like, that's awesome. Like, yep. she's this, she's a pragmatist. And she's like, okay, in the real world. And he's trying all this other stuff. And, and in the movie, I just, I don't know. I didn't. It gives him a much more interesting backstory with this. And it sort of highlights that immortality can be a curse. Imagine being stuck at the awkward, gawky teenager age for centuries. Well, yeah. I And I just think it's interesting that he wanted to lose his immortality in the book. And the unicorn wanted to gain hers back yes. after she became human, Lady Almalthia. Something I picked up early on was that she's kind of like supposed to be indifferent to the world, except that she's obviously the unicorn that is not indifferent because she cares enough to leave her forest. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like that nagging thing. As soon as somebody put something in her head that she might be the last, then she was unsatisfied. 
So it's kind of one of those, the tree of knowledge sort of thing. Once you're aware, ignorance is bliss. For the unicorn, ignorance is bliss because she's totally happy in her forest until somebody says, oh, something and then suddenly she's got these nagging doubts and now she there's no rest for her and she's always kind of wanting to be something else. So she's else. also very isolated but it doesn't bother her. Right. She's, she's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> she's basically kind of this alien thing. Right. So in the movie I thought this was sort of an interesting change because she's much more identifiable. You, you empathize with her in a way that you don't in the book. Unicorns don't vanish. We can be hunted. We can be killed. We can be caged but we just don't vanish. I will say, I really love Mia Farrow's voicing because she does have that sort of almost childlike. It's very innocent, and yet it's sort of distant. It's it's aloof and imperial at the same time. I felt like they did something with the recording of her voice, too. Like, I felt like when she was talking, sometimes there was mm-hmm. a filter on it that made it not echoey, but it definitely had a, 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 a tone to strange. it. Yeah, yeah, to make it, like you said, ethereal. We're going to talk about themes like happiness and the illusion versus reality and myths and legends and stuff. I Real fast, before we get into all of that, I wanted to talk a little bit about Peter Siegel. I think it's a good time to do that. So after writing this book and then an introduction to the American print edition of The Lord of the Rings, he wrote the screenplay for the 1978 animated version of The Lord of the Rings. And then two decades later, he wrote the teleplay for Sarek, which is episode 71 of the best television series ever, Star Trek The Next Generation. Come at me. So you have some interesting trivia about Peter S. Yeah, so a little bit more about him. Um, the film is developed by Rankin Bass. Uh, you might know them if you watch the Hobbit series, the cartoony ones. It's very much the same sort of style. They also did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So they're kind of iconic for that. Well, and the animation style um, for this was also in the Hobbit and then also in, um, oh my god, that, that 80s cartoon movie that I can't, or cartoons that I can't think of what it is. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Okay, so Beatles had some very interesting legal issues. Uh, To start with, there was a dispute with Granada Media, which held the licensing. Beagle was supposed to get 5% of the net profits. They had a disagreement about that. Um, Eventually in... Thundercats! I'm sorry, I remember now. Okay. (laughs) Okay, seriously? (laughs) No, I'm sorry. (laughs) All right, so they had a dispute over this um, in... 2011, Beagle announced that the first results of the deal included limited edition art prints and original concept paintings for the film, a nationwide digital screening with Beagle, uh, which would in, uh, include a Q&A and a complete renovation of the film for a worldwide release in movie theaters in 2015. So this was very exciting for a lot of fans. It's like, oh, he's going to be touring. We can go see it with him. And that would be awesome. And then they were canceled, kind of surprisingly. It turns out that at the time, um, a person who owned Beagle's or had control over over Beagle's interests uh, said that he was an alcoholic, he had severe memory issues, he was in mental decline. A few years ago, Beagle came out of that and said, no, these were absolute lies. I've had tests. My memory's fine. I was never an alcoholic. Uh, there are some worries that he might be destitute. He says, as for being a writer, it's a very chancy sort of profession. You're very, very lucky if you can make it as a writer. He's doing fine. He doesn't have any major issues with finances. However, he and Hunt, let's see, what was it? Uh, Connor Cochrane, who owned the press, and they still have a lawsuit in process was supposedly um, engaged in elder abuse with him. Oh. Yeah. So Beagle's own children testified against him. So there's another level of drama that goes into that, and Beagle says he's been very hurt by it. 
the lawsuit is set to go in January 2018, but I haven't heard anything more about that. It's just very interesting of what's happened with him creatively. And this has happened to a few artists before. So the guy who wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel, he had a friend take care of his finances. The friend basically ripped him off and he got none of the money from that book. Wow. Yeah. So Beagle was in a very similar thing. Um, this guy basically you know, stole from him, mm-hmm. if you believe Beagle, which I'm inclined to. Beagle is writing again. He's doing tours. He does, like, book signings and whatnot. So he's out and about and active. And he's on Twitter. I added Peter S. Beagle. We will see if he gets back to me. <laughs> well, there's always hope. There is always hope. By the way, I'm going to totally take care of your finances for, for this project, right? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm totally legit. Oh, if I disappear for a couple years, we know who to blame. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just edit that part right out. Um, okay, so that's the history of Peter S. Beagle. I wanted to give a little bit of history about the unicorn itself, because I am a 38-year-old queer lady, and so unicorns to me are all about farting rainbows and glitter and, you know, hooray for, I don't know why or how it became kind of synonymous with LGBT issues, but I also have a six-year-old who is really into unicorns as well, My Little Pony iteration, as well as just ponies and unicorns and fantastical things. She's not a horse girl by any means, but she definitely um, enjoys the unicorn. So, but the history of the unicorn. The unicorn did not spring fully formed into the popular imagination, instead it gradually evolved from numerous early sources. First reports of the unicorn date back to the 4th century, where Greek physician Tessius recorded exotic tales he'd heard from travelers. There's in India certain wild asses, which are as large as horses and larger. Their bodies are white, their heads are dark red, and their eyes dark blue. They have a horn in the forehead, which is about a foot and a half in length. The horn, he noted, was said to be white, red, and black. Um, The legend spread. Different cultures spawned various versions. It was in Chinese lore. Um, In China, they had a 12-foot long horn on its head and was supposed to bring good luck. Their modern images tend to assume unicorns are horse size. The Visiologus size, yeah, physiologist, I don't know, a 12th century bestiary described it as a very small animal, like a kid, which is assuming kid as a baby goat. Belief in unicorns increased with the invention of printing and distribution of the Bible, which mentions the creatures at least seven times in the Old Testament. Unicorns are connected with symbolism and often depicted as white, representing purity. And we're going to kind of come back to that purity thing in just a second. So all of that came from Live Science website, and I will link to it. But uh, I thought that was interesting, that kind of the mythology of the unicorns. And the reason why it's connected with LGBT things, um, because it's very much connected to rainbows, rainbows and LGBT thing. But then also, um, the unicorn was supposedly masculine, and now a lot of times it's feminine, and in some places it's non-gendered. So there's this idea of it being special, hard to find. In certain parts of the dating culture, a unicorn is a bi woman who's willing, who's single and willing to date a mixed gendered couple. And they're called unicorns because they're extremely hard to find, extremely rare, and apparently horny. So, you know, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hooray for unicorns. That's all I have to say. There's another couple little things. So, Amalthea is a reference to a nanny goat who is nursed, who nursed Zeus. The original Amalthea had lost a horn, which became the cornucopia, effectively making her a unicorn. Ah! Way to go, Smendrick. Smendrick? is a Yiddish word meaning someone who is foolish, clueless, or hopelessly out of depth. Aww. A boy sent to do a man's job. Poor Smendrick. <laughs> Lear is an Irish word for sea. There we go. 
But yeah. Does Molly have a, a nice meeting? Uh, Molly grew. There is some supposedly something out of grew, although it looked like it was reaching th- more than anything. I felt like she was the most uh, uninteresting character. Really? Honestly. Yeah. She didn't. She grew a little. Okay. First off, her introduction. She's with the guys in the Coley's band of misfit toys, right? They're out there in the forest and she's making rat soup out of the same rat, you know, four days in a row. So I'm like, okay, so this is a woman who's resourceful. She's traveling with all these men. She belongs to Coley, but um, definitely stands up to him and, ha- you know, so I was like, kind of, I'm she's kind of there for her. You know, yeah, bit. she's kind of the shrew, the nag, but also, you know, she obviously is, was hardened by life and she's out there and, you know, she's not going to be anybody's victim. I was a little disappointed when she also ran after Marion and Robin and stuff because I was kind of hmm. hoping that she would but okay fine she comes back though she's one of the first ones to come back and she calls Smendrick on it and she's like well you're gonna run away from us now this then, is such a great scene though okay she's a unicorn you keep saying it's a great scene it is a great scene I feel like it's a great scene if you know the thing about virgins and unicorns and what that means yeah but if you don't here's this true awesome gal who maybe is awesome, maybe not, whatever. She's with these guys. She's talking to Smedrick. The unicorn shows up and she's like, how dare you show up? How dare you? Uh, you okay, seriously? Okay, I think the sound bar just like... Probably exploded. Yeah. <laughs> I was so confused watching this as a child. And then again, as a, I was like, I don't... Why is she angry? And then she, and then she's like, I forgive you. And, I'm, and the unicorn's like, yep, that's, that sounds legit. You know, you're, you're... And even Smedrick's like, well, at first he's like, don't talk to her like that. But then he just kind of backs away and she gets to have this angry moment. So to put it into context, explain why this is a quote unquote great scene. Can you talk to us a little bit about this virgin unicorn thing that I apparently just don't know Okay, about? so this is one of those things when... As a child, I didn't fully get, although it was a very interesting scene, of her being mad at a unicorn because she's the only one who isn't completely entranced by the unicorn. Right. Everyone else, oh, she's beautiful, she's perfect, she's this amazing thing. And this is the first person who goes, you're kind of an ass. But why is she an ass? Because she's there? Well, it speaks a lot more to me about... She's a literal ass with a horn on her head. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but this kind of goes to me. Um, one, you're you're subverting um, some of the genres, and so all right. So to backtrack a little bit, this film to me is one of those great pieces where you watch it as a kid and you get it on one level. You watch it as an adult, you get a completely different level. So kids in the audience are not going to get the whole virgin thing. Adults, they're, they're like, oh, okay, so you're not a virgin anymore. You're tired. You've had this life that hasn't been great. You've been hardened by it. And you can see that she was once this idyllic, you know, young girl who had these fantasies. And she wasted her life on these fantasies. She joined Captain Cully, basically wanting to have that Robin Hood, and it didn't turn out to be that way. So, I'm sorry, but why is that the unicorn's fault? It's not the unicorn's fault. It's she's just kind of confronting what her life has become. So it's misplaced rage. Yeah, and the unicorn doesn't really have an issue with it because it's not really directed at her. It's a lot about her own life. Okay, so just to follow this through, because I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm just dense. If the unicorn had come to Molly earlier, some other random unicorn had shown up at some point when she was still young and idealistic, you know, and hadn't 
gone off with these men or whatever, would her, her life would have been different because she would have had her fantasies proven to be real and then she wouldn't be chasing fantasies? I don't think that's the point. I think okay. this is one of those moments when you sort of wake up in your life and you go, what have I done with it? What am I? You know, I, I had all these great plans and ideas and they failed. You know, so it's those those ideas of, of, you know, your dreams have been dashed. Okay, but how, how do you get that from her yelling, how dare you show up now that I'm this? Because think about how how painful that is. You know, now that I am this, she thinks so little of herself and of her life and what she's become. How dare you, you magical, wonderful thing. You couldn't come to me when I was something special. Think about how much Isn't she's it lost. better to have something special show up when you're when you have gone through life and, and maybe your life isn't great and then something magical happens and you're like, damn, there is magic in the world. Now I can find renewed hope and I can make better choices or I can, I can do the, the world of possibilities. She's beat down with those guys. I'm going to fucking cook a rat four times and feed it. <laughs> the soup is as thin as sweat. Like she's not happy. And then the unicorn comes. Now she has purpose. She's going to go with the unicorn. Why is that? But 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 she's going through a moment of regret, and that is one of the central, main, huge themes of this. She sure. has, a, and she goes off, and she has her journey, and she has a life, and she does have adventures after this. She doesn't wait around anymore for you know things to happen. I, I kind of feel like wherever she came from, joining up with Colina's band was an epic adventure. Like she she That's unless she got she was kidnapped hoping. and took oh, taken, I don't know what the backstory of that is. But I I don't know, man. I I feel like we're we're putting a lot. But don't you into have that this. idea of expectation? Like, I, I'm going to go do this thing. I'm expecting it to be this great thing. And it isn't. Yeah. So then that's sad and depressing. And the, so then you're bitter and angry. Sure. And then something magical shows up and you're like, well, fuck you, magical thing, because you could have <laughs> shown up earlier. And then maybe I would have made different choices. But she doesn't say, if you had come to me when I was young, I would have X, Y, and Z. She doesn't say that. She doesn't say, but seeing you that. makes me regret my life or seeing you makes me put myself in perspective. Nothing. She's just angry. And then she gets over it like okay. this. And so, I just, you guys, let me, let me, um, and without, okay. The only thing that I can say, and this has nothing to do with Molly, but it has to do with the subversion is if, if there's this thing that the unicorn only shows up to virgins and the pure of heart, blah, blah, blah. The fact that Molly's definitely not a virgin, she's been around and she is seen by the unicorn. She sees the unicorn and is seen by the unicorn. That's cool. That's like saying that, hey, you don't have to be a virgin to have value. So I, I can get behind that idea, but that seems like a stretch that I'm working at. And your face is telling me that it is a stretch. But what you're saying also kind of feels like a stretch, especially if you don't have this built-in knowledge that uh, of whatever it is that we're supposed to... Maybe in 1968, people got that, but <laughs> I don't... stop monologuing? Okay. Your turn. <laughs> All you right. a talking stick. <laughs> So I can beat you with it. <laughs> All right. So the example I was going to give you, think about a young girl who, not young, but you know, say 20 or something, who has their dreams set on being married and they put all that money into the wedding and they think that, okay, I'm going to be the princess. This is going to be my day. I'm going to have a great life. And then 20 years later, marriage is nothing like they thought it was. You know, they, they didn't expect to have to struggle. They didn't expect to have the disappointments that you have in relationships, especially when you're young and you don't know how relationships really work. So imagine that. And then you see somebody who you went to high school with and they have the great life you wish you had. That I think is the feeling that he is trying to get with Molly. Right. So then you go, like that's the road not taken or it's it's cool that it worked out for you or maybe even I'm jealous that you got something else but I don't 
But this is regret. This is her life going, I regret. I just wish she could have said the word regret. Maybe I needed to be a little on the nose, but this was just, it was. This is one of the things I love about the book and the film, though. There's no big moral message at the end of, oh, friendship is wonderful. It's none of that. There are some messages, but. There are messages, but you have to intuit them. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Okay, you are a book nerd. You are supposed to intuit. No, no, no. I, I, there are definitely some messages that, that I feel like the book is telling me, and I'm not sure how much I like them. So we will, we will get to that. I know, now she's glaring. It's a good thing she doesn't have a stick. Okay. Anyways, so then what does Molly do? Okay, I'm sorry. Just to get back to this. So she has her whatever moment of catharsis with the unicorn. Now she's going to go. It is cool that she's the only one who touches the unicorn. Spendrick does not touch the unicorn. Molly's like all about the hands. Of all the humans, she's the only one who recognizes the unicorn. Right. The super practical Molly. The pragmatist. Sure. Which is great. And again, again, I think that that is subverting a little bit that only virgins or the pure at heart can see the unicorn, because obviously Molly can. You know, she's pure at heart, but she's not, you know, fine. But she's also not looking for fantasies anymore. This is what got everyone who went to Mommy Fortuna's. They wanted the fantasy. She's not about the fantasy anymore. Right. Okay. So then they, they travel. But that's huge. That's a huge thing. It is huge. And okay. I want to talk more about Mommy Fortuna and the idea of reality versus what we want okay. it to be. Okay. So I'm kind of saving that. But then we get to the castle and she's back to being the scullery maid. Mm. So she's again in that position of, of the servant and she's cleaning and whatever. And she's the she's going to help Lear with his grammar on his poems. And she's teaching him how to peel potatoes. And, you know, she's and she's kind of she's holding everything together, you know, being there as a, as a comforting ear to Smendrick, who's, you know, having to be the clown for the king and she's trying to talk to the Lady Elmouthia so she's important but I just and then at the end she's going to go off with Smendrick and you don't feel like she has enough agency I really don't also I feel like she was written to just be the words sometimes she's like do something do something he does something how dare you do that so do something different so then he does no that wasn't what I wanted like I just I found in a in a novel that has these almost feminist themes like it's not fully thought through. I, I just, I was frustrated with Molly. She's I wanted some more out of Molly. Though. She does. I'm not saying and she's a bad character. There, there is that line in the book of, you know, she's the women one don't the always create tears when they cry. Mm-hmm. You know, women are used to healing, you know, if they understand the word. So there is that moment of her. But I, if you look at her versus Kali, in Kali, she's stuck in this position. There is no hope. When she is at King Hagrid's, She's got purpose. So, yes, she is keeping Smedric together. She is trying to help Lear. She is helping everybody out. Yeah. But she's got a very different way of looking at things. Sure. But and she's support staff. But not like just that. Like, Cully, she would back talk to because she was incredibly disappointed with him. When Haggard does certain things, she's like, oh, okay. Well, I know my role, and that is to be subversive. That is to play a part because I have a bigger destiny ahead. Sure. <laughs> I I just I, we have basically two women in this in this novel, and one of them is not really a woman. She's a unicorn who's then trapped in a woman's body, um, with all the pitfalls of that. And and I think she also makes a great counterpoint to the unicorn because the unicorn is innocence and Molly is not. Yes, that was good. And, and the unicorn is is majestic and amazing, and Molly's the scullery maid, and so I can I can see that the the dichotomy. But is that that's that's women, okay? So you're either the virgin or the whore. You're either she's <laughs> okay. Come on, no, no, I'm, no slut shaming. No, no, no. I'm just saying you're you're the pure, or you've been around. Well, if you're right? going to make the, the distinction, I mean, there's the crone, 
Okay, with Mother so Fortuna. So if you want to do that, if you want to say, okay, there's the mother virgin, there's the mother and the crone. Yeah. Yeah. Which, okay, fine. And it's a fairy tale, so, you know, maybe not read too much into it. But I, I will just, I'm going to own it. I was a little disappointed that Molly I, didn't have more agency, that, Mo, that Molly didn't really grow. She was there. But I feel like if, if you even want to say her moment of catharsis, her, her character development all happened in that crazy-ass conversation with the unicorn where she starts off angry and then... She gets her inner peace, and then she's going to play her role and be support staff and help the story along and blah, blah, blah. But, like, all her character development happened in, in six lines in her first scene, or her second scene, I guess, technically. And then that was it. And I just, I don't know. So that's that's cool. Plus, my God, the animation of her hair just drove me up a wall. <laughs> it, it is a little bit Medusa-like. It's a little something. And her eyes, too, man. They were, they, yeah, this, mm. Okay. Anyways, so that's my rant on Molly. Shall we rant about anybody else? <laughs> oh, we have lots to rant about. We, we really, really do. But I like Molly. So you don't, I do. I liked the potential of Molly. Well, do you want to get to Mommy Fortuna? Okay, since we're talking about women, let's talk about Molly. Uh, Molly? Molly Fortuna? No. <laughs> Mama Fort- Mommy Fortuna, who, as you said before, was voiced by Angela Lansbury, which was awesome. I thought one of the most interesting things about her, so as you touched on in the recap, she's got this carnival of um, creatures of night brought to light, and it's basically the illusion. So none of them are really creatures of night, but because people show up wanting to see creatures of night, she can do the glamour and make them look, you know, appear to those who want to believe that they are these big, bad, mythological things, except for, obviously, the harpy and the unicorn. But even the unicorn, what does she have to do to the unicorn? She has to put a fake horn on the unicorn. Yep, so that the people will see it. And I thought that was very profound. Yeah. And it it gets into what reality is versus what you want it to be, right? There are a lot of very profound little lines. And one of them that I love from the unicorn is, real magic can never be made by offering someone else's liver. You must tear out your own and not expect to get it back. Real witches know this. Yes. And there's some great put And that's foreshadowing to the end as well as about the idea of sacrifice. Oh, yeah. There's lots of lines about that that are just peppered in that are are really great. And that's one of the things I liked about the book so much is that there are some really profound moments in there. Yeah. Okay, so Mommy Fortuna, truth erodes her magic. She's the illusionist. Mm -hmm. And she's there for the money. She wants the money. She wants to be a success. She knows it'll eventually kill her. She doesn't care. Her form of immortality, which is the harpy, is the harpy. And it's the knowledge of the harpy will have forever because of what Mommy Fortuna. So Mommy Fortuna is like, I caught you, I caged you, not forever, but you will always have to live with the knowledge that at one point you were bested by me. So take and that. And she looks death straight in the eye. Oh boy, and reaches out with her little clawy hands for the claws coming right at her, for sure. In the movie, when the harpy gets free, she charges the unicorn twice. The yes. unicorn fights her off and then she goes after Mommy Fortuna. In the book, did she charge the unicorn? Because I yes. feel like she charged her once, but missed on purpose and clipped her shoulder a little bit to kind of be like, I could do this, but I'm not going to. But like, well, to, to she does kind of get aggressive with the unicorn, and the unicorn's response is joyous, which is such an odd response, but she's like, oh, there's another magical creature like me. Right, no, but I mean, when she yeah. charges her, she charges but then misses. I, yeah. think I felt intentional, but only does it once. To so kind of like take the unicorn down a peg. Yes, you you freed me, but I'm, I'm also pretty kick-ass, and I could take you if I want to, but I'm going to be distracted over here with the, I'm going to kill the, you know, Mommy Fortuna, and I'm busy, and you know, whatever. But I felt like it was definitely like a power thing. I also thought their unicorn's reaction here is very interesting compared to the reaction against the Red Bull. So her response is, 
walk, don't run, we're going to be calm, we're going to ignore her. Because magical immortal things are drawn to you when you run. Like, she says that. She's yeah. like, they, they will notice you, but if you walk... But then she forgets that when it's... The which, okay, I know this probably isn't, like, a big message, but to me this was like, it's really easy to give advice when, you know, you're not actually in the danger. one in the danger, mm. but then all of your best laid intentions and all of that good advice goes out the window when it's actually you facing your personal Red Bull and you're like... And then you run, and you know, even when you had told so, people don't don't run. Do you think that she knew she was more powerful than the harpy? Because she has no fear of the harpy. I feel like since they were the same sides of the same coin, the dark and the light magic, that I felt like they were kind of probably supposed to be around equal. Mm. But at this point in the unicorn's journey, she hasn't experienced a whole lot. She's been mistaken as a mare, and then she fell asleep and got caged. Like that's all that's really happened to her. So I feel like the unicorn at the end would, would maybe have a different reaction to the harpy. I think the unicorn has a lot of experience, but hasn't been touched by it. Because ah, she talks yes. about all the that's times where, very detached. Yeah, you know, oh, I've escaped this, I've escaped that. Nobody's been able to trap me. Yeah. And that's sort of the nature of who she is. She's very detached from the world. Right, which is partly the whole point, right? What I liked about the unicorn and the harpy, and this is something that as a child I was like, okay, why did the unicorn let her go? And I, I kind of love that they have this very deep understanding that they are the two sides of the coin and they have to exist with each other. Yeah. Well, she knows who she is instantly. She knows her name. It's not just the harpy. The harpy has a name. Yes. Celine or Selena or... Oh, let me look this up. Uh, because this is an actual harpy from Greek mythology. Uh, Solanio is one of the three classic harpies because she is the dark and twisted gang to the unicorn's light. Cool. So, yeah, there we go. Yeah, she has a name. She she has agency. Yeah, no, I, I didn't surprise me. that. I mean, also, that's what we want our heroes to do. We want them to make the right choice even when it's when it's hard, even when it puts yourself in danger. <clears throat> Star Trek, the Corbinite maneuver. <laughs> um, you know, even when it's maybe not the best for you, you live up to those ideals that you've set. If you say, I'm going to be a good person, then you actually have to do the good person shit. And that goes to another major theme of sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, it, she didn't sacrifice really there, but she was maybe almost willing to. And she she did get hurt a little bit in the book. She got a little, yeah. you know, that was the only time we really see her. <coughs> but, you know, looking back at Cully, uh, this is one of his henchmen. They'll be back for them, not the sort to trade something for nothing. And no more than I, Robin Hood might have stayed for us if we were. This is Captain Cully's um, henchman talking to him when everyone leaves to go to Robin Hood because they're not sacrificing. They can't be heroes because they don't understand that that's the main thing. Right. You have to sacrifice. Yes. And make those hard choices. Yeah. And and actually wrestle with moral dilemmas. The unicorn pauses before she, you know, lets the harpy out. She, you know, there's some pausing. And I think yeah. pausing is important. If you don't pause, then you didn't struggle. And if you didn't struggle, then yeah, you can still get the credit for making the right decision, but it's almost, it's, it's, there's no drama. There's no tension. Yeah. I also love, um, Captain Coley's response to Robin Hood of, let me pull this one out. Page 90 something. Robin Hood is a myth. Captain Coley said nervously, a classic example of the heroic folk figures synthesized out of need. John Henry is another. Men have to have heroes. Heroes, but no man could ever be as big as the need, and so the legend grows around a grain of truth like a pearl. Not that it isn't a remarkable trick, of course. Although John Henry was a real dude, and he was pretty awesome, and the folk song <laughs> did not lie, because songs don't lie. John Henry told his captain, a man 
man ain't nothing but a man. <laughs> okay, but going back to the idea of legend that Robin Hood is a legend, maybe yes. it was a seed of truth, and that Captain Coley is so desperate for that notoriety, but he can't sacrifice, and that is his major flaw. Interesting to note that Captain Coley kind of is one of the few characters who gets an actual black and white, easy to see, happy ending. He becomes a bard and gets notoriety as a bar- in the book, not in the movie. In the movie, he just disappears. But like, you know, he's he's there in the book. He wants to sing songs. He's much more interested in singing songs about his exploits than actually having the exploits. He's self-aware to realize that he's not a real hero because he doesn't want to do the hero stuff. But he wants to sing the songs. He wants to. He's a hero in his own mind. And then he gets to go off and do that at the end because all the outlaws get pardoned. So they're all you know whatever. And then he and his Jack Jiggly or J- Juggly Jack whatever <laughs> that guy they go off together. Uh, little singing minstrels off together in the woods making a sweet sweet music together and uh, so yay for Captain Cully self-awareness wins in the day but I love that he has one of the most analytical lines in the entire book mm-hmm. oh my heroes are a synthesis of this and that and it's very self-aware oh the whole book was so very self-aware about it being yeah. a fairy tale and yeah. that's one of the things I loved about it is the subversion of tropes mm-hmm. so the, the happy ever after completely subverted yes hold that thought okay King Haggard though is he after wealth or power or anything? No. no. He wants happiness. That's his, his one thing. Yeah, but he wants dark, twisted happiness. His happiness is wrapped up in controlling other people, other things. I think his flaw is more that he depends on external things to make him happy. He wants a son. He wants a unicorn. He wants a magician. He never looks inside himself. It's funny because we don't look at our notes ahead of time with each other, but I totally wrote the external happiness thing down for either <laughs> too. Yeah, it is all very, yeah, fist boom. It's all very external for him and 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 dark and twisted he he does he he's a hoarder of, of beauty, of something good, the unicorns, and they're there just to serve him. He's he's very villainous, and and that's what and voiced by Christopher Lee, by who the does way. a fantastic job. Yes. So King Haggard could easily be another Captain Collie. He could be just this, this silly little creature. But in both the book and the movie, I will give Christopher Lee a lot of credit for this. He is genuinely menacing. Yes. Oh my gosh, when he's up there on the on the the tower thing and he's grabbing at uh, the yeah. Lady Almalthia because she's kind of forgetting who she is and all of those stuff and the whole thing about staring into her eyes and my god he is this creepy old man he's just going to keep it all for himself he doesn't and like I don't we, think he's even capable of true happiness no probably not but you know we said this in the uh, Die Hard podcast we like intelligent villains Yes. We like an intelligent enemy, and he is intelligent. He is spot on about it. And a lot he's of not one dimensional. But do you really see him as a standard villain? Because there's a lot of tragedy with him. It's self made tragedy, isn't it? Yeah, but it just, it, it's. I mean, I can sympathize a little bit and tell it. Okay, here's the thing if you've had a hard life and bad stuff has happened to you, you get my sympathy. If your reaction to that is to hoard all the uniforms in. Uniforms? <laughs> all the unicorns in the world so that you can have a couple seconds of joy at the experience expense of an entire race. No, dude, my sympathy is gone. You are an awful person. In the book, you didn't pay the witch who built your castle. That is just tacky. As somebody who does freelance work, I like to get paid for my time. And so if I make you a castle and you don't pay me, yeah, I'm gonna... So I don't feel bad for him. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I I felt a little sympathy, but no, he made bad choices. this is what I love about Mm -hmm. him being not a one-dimensional character. There there is an element of tragedy to him. Also, speaking of facing your 
death. He totally knew it was going to happen. Yeah. He recognized her. I think he was tired and was like willing to let it come, kind of like Mommy and Fortuna McGroot said it to him as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You've let it in by the front door. You know, I wouldn't be you. McGroot, by the way, is the magician that was sent away when Schmendrick showed up. But yeah, and and then he crumbles. His castle falls, and he falls with it mm. down. It is his literal. Wait, hold on. I'm making a hand motion. You got to look at me. Literal downfall. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Okay, but this also kind of goes to the fairy tale thing of, you know, destiny, fate, and choice. Yes. You know, are they fated to do these things? Do they choose to do these things? What is their destiny? Because Smendrick has this line when they leave uh, Hagsgate. You know, he talks about, well, we're in a fairy tale. We're in these people's fairy tales. So we're just kind of the side characters and we have to continue on with our path because this is what we're supposed to do. Can we talk about the ending now? Because I, I feel okay. like... Okay, so also... Because this really ties into something else that Smedrick says about being aware of okay, your say. Well, go back up. Is there songs? Ah. Okay, okay yes. <laughs> My note. The songs. Ugh. <laughs> okay, yes, but <laughs> we'll come back to that. Okay, so no. My quote here is about, it's towards the end. It's about being not self-aware. Um, the true secret of being a hero, this is Smedrick talking at the end, lies in knowing the order of things. Swineherd cannot already be wed to the princess when he embarks on his adventures nor can the boy knock on the witch's door when she's already away on vacation. The wicked uncle cannot be found out and foiled before he does something wicked. Things must happen when it is time for them to happen. Quests may not be simply abandoned, Prophecies may not be left to rot like unpicked fruit. Unicorns may go unrescued for a very long time, but not forever. The happy ending cannot come in the middle of the story. And I think, first of all, it's really cool what he says, <laughs> and... It's profound, but it also made me think about something else. So I'm going to get a tiny bit political here. Here it is. In 2016, when the presidential election happened, I was very sad, like a lot of people. And one of the ways that I was able to continue, you know, uh, doing activist work and, and fighting for equality and stuff was by telling myself the story that it's always bad before it's good. In every epic quest story, in every superhero story, the superhero is is beaten down and almost gets it, and then they rally and they come back. So you have to have that dark part before you can have the happy ending. If we don't have the dark part, then we don't appreciate the happy ending. So what I told my daughter was, we're still in the sad part. We're still in the struggle part. We're gonna get to the happy ending. And I believe that because I'm an optimist. Things are going to get better. Progress continues to move forward. But right now, we're not there. And that's okay. We're still in the story. And the best part about our lives and the stories that we tell is that they don't end. And we get to keep going. Anyways, that really resonated with me. A related question. Does the unicorn really feel joy in the beginning of the novel? I don't think you can until you've experienced the other side of it. Exactly. And so that's the whole thing about her being mortal is that she has to feel pain in order to feel joy. Because she has no joy. She just exists. She's yeah. a unicorn, she exists, and that's what she, she does. She has to fall in love. She has to feel regret. <sighs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, somebody does not like romance novels. Somebody does not like some of the messages that somebody got out of this movie book combo thing. Um, because you, you highlighted it as I was scrolling past my notes. The, the songs are a big change. Can we just say real fast, the songs were a big change from the book. There was no, I mean, you know, obviously America and Man's Road and whatever. Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, stick to your day jobs. You yeah. guys are really good actors. So, but, well, I mean, although, although I will say, because they weren't good, 
It made it awkward, which kind of made it believable, which kind of made it sweet and sentimental, but still highly uncomfortable to listen to. Almost every single movie now, they have a professional singer come in instead of just the main voice actor. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, it's it's to a certain sense it is authentic, but I kind of wish they could sing. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to what you were saying before about fate and the destiny, um, can we talk a bit about the people in the town, Hagsgate? Yes. Because they definitely had. Oh, this is the prophecy. So we're just going to accept our fate and kill our children. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The guy was his name, Din Drill. Dim Drill. Dumb. Dumber. <laughs> Dwight. Let's call him D Bag. Oh come on, call him D Bag. <laughs> all right, all right. I know I put his name somewhere. Okay, Hagsgate. Drin. Drin. Okay, so Drin of Hagsgate. He is the father of Lear. He's the actual father. Yes. Nothing said about the mom, but, you know, there's the father. Right. Well, I mean, we already Ooh. have two women, or one and a half women in this novel. We <laughs> certainly don't need another one. So Drin, you know, tries to commit infanticide and doesn't work. He fails because of cats. Yay, cats. But also, he tries to hire Smendrick to... Poison him. To yeah. Po- yeah, so, uh, okay. And that's like a regular magician thing, apparently, that magicians can do. So that's an interesting part of fairy tales that I didn't know about, but <laughs> But cool. the, the funny thing about them is that they have all the prosperity and none of the happiness. And then there's Hagrid, who has, you know, all this prosperity, no happiness. Prosperity does not bring happiness. That is true. Prosperity does not bring happiness. Also, if you kill your children to keep your crops growing, maybe you don't deserve happiness, <laughs> says me. But the reason why they weren't happy is because they knew it wasn't going to last, which I right. thought was really interesting. Which which totally connects to the idea of immortality, right? Mm-hmm. Like If you're going to live forever, what's the point? But if you know your life is fleeting then shouldn't you focus on the good stuff and be like, my God, this is only going to last so long. I will get like squeeze all the happiness out of it that I possibly can. Yeah, so immortal beings cannot appreciate mortality. Yeah. And again, another great line is Smendrick says this about uh, the unicorn of, even though you are the most beautiful creature in the world, everything that is mortal is more beautiful. Because it's fleeting and it doesn't last. Yeah. Okay, can we talk about the tree? Because I think we need to talk about the tree. Here's my opinion of the tree. Ugh. Okay. And then... <laughs> with a hearty, I don't even care. With a hearty, I don't even care, Smendrick tries us out a spell once he's... He's, cause, okay, he's, he's tied to this tree because Cully ties him to a tree. He's like, you're a magician, so apparently ropes are going to hold you, whatever. And I'm going to tie you to this tree and figure out what to do with you tomorrow. Maybe we'll sell you. Okay, we don't know. So he's tied to a tree. I don't even care, he says. Smendrick tries to spell out and transforms the tree into a caricature of all the heavy-breasted, over-affectionate fat aunts of your childhood, which I felt kind of worked for the movie. In the book, can you find it while I read this? Because in the book, it's so, it's just, it's like a throwaway thing, and it's great, and it's like weird, and you just roll with it. But in the movie, it makes it into this uncomfortable thing. So this tree, she starts going on and on about how she, much she loves him, the undying love that one can expect from a tree. And it's meant to be a lesson, I guess, and to be careful what you wish for. Like maybe a single-minded love, like a single-minded pursuit of being loved, like if that's all you're thinking about, doesn't, no matter who it comes from, isn't isn't a good thing because Smendrick has kind of a single-minded, like he wants to be, I'm not really sure what we're trying to say here. Um, but because of the over-sexualized tree, it's just, it's scary. It's horrific. And then the unicorn shows shows up and the tree calls the unicorn a hussy for some reason and then tries to freaking kill Smendrick, death by bosom, because if she can't have him, no one will and she's literally going to smother him and it's awful. In the book though, 
He tried to explain to the oak that love was generous, precisely because it could never be immortal. And then he tried to yell for Captain Gully, but he could only make a small creaking sound like a tree. She means well, he thought, and gave himself up for love. <laughs> then the ropes went slack. He lunged against them. He fell to the ground on his back, wriggling for air. The unicorn stood over him, dark as blood in his darkened vision. She touched him with her horn. When he could rise, she turned away, and the magician followed her, wary of the oak, though it once again as still as any tree that had never loved. It's not as big of a thing, and it's just, it's kind of weird. I like that it makes that still that point about immortality. It makes the point about giving up, whatever. It's fine. The movie makes it scary and hypersexual and uncomfortable, and it is, I guarantee you, one of the top two or three things, maybe the top thing that people remember from this movie. When you're like, do you remember The Last Unicorn? Oh yeah, was that the one with the fucked up tree? Yep, that's the one! <laughs> Nobody remembers the harpy? Well, like I said, well, I mean, it maybe depends on your perspective. I remember the tree and the harpy and the clock. Those are the th three things that I remembered, and since I speak for everyone as the every woman in this room. <laughs> so here's a funny little bit of trivia. In the 25th anniversary edition, they took all the dams out. The dams? Yeah, so dam. You know, oh, they... God. <laughs> I was like, there was a dam? I thought they were on a bridge at one point. No, sorry. Okay. <laughs> so they took all, you know, oh, damn, this, that, um, the curse is out. However. It must be the one that's on Amazon Prime. Either that or I'm so desensitized that I don't even However, the there's damn. no change to the harpy or the tree. And yes, it would be much harder to change the animation. But it's so clunky. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why I don't like this balderization, this Disney-fying of, of things. Even though it's a children's film, keep in the dam. Yeah. Well, this room was pretty a G and there was the the rapey tree and the harpy and the other things that rhyme with an E sound. I don't, there was a lot of crazy stuff in this in this movie that are kind of nightmare inducing, but it was rated G. But how much do you censor for children? 1982, you know? Yeah, because... It depends on the, the, the kid, I think. Yeah. I think if this movie was made today, well, it, if it was made in its current, it would at least be a PG, mm. for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, things have gotten a little bit stricter uh, since this particular time. But you don't censor yourself around Ella. You know, whatever comes out, comes out. And I'm very much in the mind of Neil Gaiman. He wrote shit in one of his children books. And he said, you know, children either, you know, they hear it, but they also know their own level of ability and what they want to handle. Yeah. So, like, Ella is like, I am not interested in violence. I don't want this scary stuff. And she makes that clear. My kid very much regulates herself. I don't know about all other kids. I can only speak for mine. But yeah, my kid gets kind of upset when I'm watching The West Wing and people are talking with raised voices because the music cues clue her in that there's drama. Oh, mommy, the music is getting tense. And I say, yeah, honey, someone might disagree. Like, it's not a big <laughs> deal. But she does. She doesn't want to watch violent stuff. She like, she, she'll hide her eyes. She's not a fan of Frozen because that crazy ass marshmallow, huge snowman guy comes out of nowhere. And then, you know, whatever. I'm not a fan because it has terrible messages. Well, and also there's some serious plot points. Too bad it wasn't based on a book. We could rip that one up. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, but yeah, she but she watched this one and, you know, she was a little scared. And she, she always asks me at the beginning, is there going to be a happy ending? And this time I was like, well, there's an ending. And, and, and so, so I said, ask me specifically what it is that you're concerned about. And so she said, is the magician and the Molly girl going to be okay at the end? And I said, yes. And then she said, is the unicorn going to find the other unicorns? Yes. Okay. So then when the unicorn got turned into Lady Almalthia, she said, is she going to get turned back? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes. So, okay. Happy ending? Eh, your mileage will vary, but... The unicorn becomes a unicorn again. Smendrick and, and Molly live, you know, they go off. And my kid doesn't care about Lear because honestly, who does? And there you go. Like, it was fine. Well, you know, for children, romance is not a big, huge thing. As adults, it's a bittersweet. We've all had failed romance. My kid was a little like, why did he kill the dragon? Was the dragon being mean to other people? 
I was like, <laughs> he's trying to be a hero, which I think makes a, an interesting point. Like if you're doing these here, quote unquote, heroic things for somebody and it's not doing it, like literally he just went out and killed something. Now, I know that there's like this hero's quest and it's like, okay, dragons are inherently bad and knights are inherently good. And so like you kill a dragon and you're fine. But really, Lady Amalthea did not want him to kill the dragon. She wasn't there well, for she's that. she's also magical. And so she likes magical creatures. Right. And so it's not really heroic as much as it's what he kind of exp- like thought he needed to do. Whatever. Well, this is a great point of... The kid felt bad Are you dragon. actually listening to the woman and what she wants? Or are yeah. you doing what she thinks she wants? Although, again, mixed messages, because in this freaking thing, the women keep changing their mind. Do something. Oh, not that. Do something. Oh, how dare you do that? Molly can't make up her... Okay, sorry. We already ranted about Molly. Okay, Molly Moving says do on. something, and she doesn't know what his magic can do, but she's like, that was the wrong thing. And so you can okay. do something. That's like standing in the kitchen and being like, make me food. And then someone gives you something, and you're like, not that food, you bastard. Like, you can't do that. Okay, but it makes sense if they're serving you rock soup. And you just go, oh my god, why would you do that? That's stupid. Okay, I don't think it was as stupid as rock soup. Well, kind of, because the unicorn makes it clear to him early on. She has this point where he tells her the story. Yeah, my my master, uh, he- Nikos. Nikos. He changed the unicorn into a, a young man who saved this princess, and they married and lived happy ever after. And the unicorn says, why would you do that? That's such a terrible thing to do to him. Okay, but let's not forget this Mendrick is like, magic, do as you will. He's not really calling the shots here. He is but a vessel. He is the conduit <laughs> of the magic. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, because I feel like the rules of this world building, mm. the magic kind of does what it wants. Like, it shows up when it wants, it does what it wants, and, and it's not always available. And then like I guess at the end when he becomes a true magician now he can always tap into that power okay, so maybe Molly now understand that. he has I mean, control I think from her perspective she has every right to go why she didn't he... hear that earlier story no but she understands unicorns in a way he doesn't well fine but she should have been more clear turn her into a fawn and then the fawn would have <laughs> run away and then, then like the story would have ended no and she needed because okay again now we're gonna get to the end she had to experience love so she could experience loss so that she could find herself so that she could face the bull hmm. right if she if she hadn't been a human then Lyra wouldn't have fallen in love with her. I mean, if she'd showed up to the castle as a puppy, different movie. <laughs> or I'm sure Lyra was God forbid a cat, the right? Then the pirate cat could have fallen in love with her. My point is that she had to be a human in order to make it work. Plus, we needed the fairy princess. Okay, so but to, to, from Molly's perspective, it still makes sense for her to have that reaction. All I'm saying is that every time Molly tells Spender to do something and he does, she gets angry that he didn't do exactly what she meant him to do, but she doesn't actually tell him what she means for him to do. La la la. Okay, okay. Kaylee, I've been married for 18 years. It's totally accurate. <laughs> Not necessarily a good thing. It's all my point. Okay. Just Anyways, saying it's accurate. So she has to. She has to be a human. She has to. And again, like oh, the fairy princess. She has to be the fairy princess. Every fairy tale needs a fairy princess. In this one, we subvert it a little bit because mm. she's like kind of a brain dead fairy princess. She doesn't. <laughs> and then she doesn't really want to be a fairy princess. And at the end, she doesn't stay a fairy princess. And she also, you know, doesn't get her happy ending. But I do love that it isn't a happy ever after. It is a very melancholy sort of film in a lot of ways. And as a child, it didn't bother me. That yeah. ending did not bother me. So you can not have to have the Disney super happy sugar ending sure. for everything. The ending was more optimistic in the book. Because we, we got, they said Molly and Spendrick are going to travel together. Yeah. We we had the thing where the, they send the, the princess in distress after Lear. Lear so is also know. a lot less bitter in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the, the book, he was just translated like, well. pissed. A lot. But I kind of love that because he does fall into the tragic hero. He's the one that's been scorned and he's lost his love and so he is a, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the 
perfect one the for the hero princess has to, to rescue. Right. The hero has to suffer so that, you know, we have to fridge our women so that our men have proper motivation. Okay, but the unicorn was not put in a fridge. No, she was made into a, a human and then she was made into a uniform and okay, then she well, went away. Should we explain that trope? Go ahead. The spread, spread the, explain the fridging. So this comes from a comic book uh, where a character's girlfriend was killed and put in a fridge and her only purpose, her only existence is for him to have a reaction and go on a vengeful trail for. And so... So that's a trope where the only point of the woman character is to be there to motivate the men. So her death or her rape or her trauma serves no other purpose but then to motivate the hero. I'm not saying that Lear has that exact same thing, but... But I'm kind of saying that Lear has a similar thing. Not really, because we have a very developed character. In Lear? No, in oh, the Unicorn. Oh, no, no, no. Yes, but from Lear's perspective, like, he's mm. he's this tragic hero because he fell in love with basically the only woman who ever showed up at the castle. And then she he, she's not there anymore. So. Okay, but she's also magical. And I love that even though she's immortal and she doesn't, she's not supposed to change. She is the impetus for other people to become greater than they are. Oh, I like that. Thank you. <laughs> Except for Molly. Molly becomes better than she was. She was just kind of this bitter, scullery woman yeah, okay, who okay. didn't like her her path, and now she she's does. got adventures. Okay. So yes, the unicorn does help inspire everybody to be better than they are. That's that's nice that she did that for other people. <laughs> I mean, well, they did that for her. So again, it's it's the innocence to experience. Uh, she goes through this horrible thing, but she's also better for it. She yes, she goes from Which isolation guess, to having empathy. So that seems like we're kind of rounding towards our messages here mm-hmm. about how like you go through a bad thing and then okay. So <laughs> so quick question for you: uh, How did you feel about the more acronistic aspects of this? Oh, have a taco, that yes. kind of stuff. And that it's in the book. It's, it is. Yeah, have book. a taco. Have a taco. Says Coley. I felt. Like, I don't know, it, it kind of made it feel like it was supposed to make it feel timeless, you mm. know, like it could be in any time in any world. It's just, you know, fairy tales and stuff are like long ago, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like fairy tale logic. But also I felt like there's a lot of stuff in here that you just rolled with it. It's weird, but that's fine. It's fairy tale and it's supposed to be weird. And the whole way that the book was written was like, why use three words when we could use 30 and, and sprinkle in a little bit of poetic imagery and make it kind of vague? Yes, because that's fairy tales and but that's what we Mabel has a fantastic understanding of fairy tales and their tropes. Sure. And he uses them expertly. Yeah. This this book was is a is a it's definitely going on my list of some of the best fairy tale stuff. Okay. So but when we talk about messages and, and universal truths and stuff, I, I don't know. Falling in love is sad but necessary in order to evolve, in order to fight your demons. Um, the love of the good man or the hero is the missing ingredient in your story of saving yourself from hell. I okay, I kind of disagree with that because the, the unicorn's journey really does start when she leaves her forest and she leaves being that isolated self. She was completely self-contained. And then she meets the butterfly and it's like, okay, well, the silly little butterfly. And then the butterfly kind of changes her a little bit and starts her on this path. And then she meets Mendrick and she's like, oh, you're, you want to go with me? Fine. <sighs> then she meets Molly and then there's another aspect of her that's changing. And so as she's going along, she's changing and changing and changing. She's getting empathy. She she starts to really care about these people and that's what makes her regret. So it's not just Lear. It's all the characters. But love was the missing thing thing at the end. I would still say it's more about empathy and losing that isolation. So she can't be the self She can't fight the Red Bull Mm -hmm. and then Lear sacrifices himself so that the Red Bull will kill him 
so that then she will be like, oh, crap, Lear just died, and I feel something because I remember what it was like to be human, and I loved him, and now I can face the Red Bull, and now I can be triumphant. Lear's sacrifice is the thing that lets her have the inner... I would go further than that. I would say Smendrick's transformation of her is what allows her to even fall in love in the first place. Well, sure. But so the transformation, then, you're saying? Yeah. Like, you have to be changed by... Okay, I have a thing about the change, but, like, so she <laughs> so she gets changed. I, I don't know. I just... Okay. Hmm. Well, okay, so... This she is- has to know... Lo- again, like, just being changed doesn't do it because she cause then she forgot who she was. Um, she has to become a little bit human in order to save everyone. She has to... Uh, he, he has to die in order for her to become complete. I don't know, man. It made me feel really uncomfortable. Well, this is what kind of got me about magic is that you have magic that is eternal. You have the unicorn. She is eternal. She is unchangeable. And then you have the magic that is all illusion and deception. And then you have Smedric's magic and his only real magic is transformation. Well, no, he brings Robin Hood out. Yeah. Okay, that was real magic. That's the first time that the magic kind of went through him and he didn't have a lot of control, but he did it. And then he changes her and then he changes her again. So that to me is a little bit more about kind of what does magic represent in this book, in this story? Is it something that is all illusion? Is it real? What is its purpose? What does it do? And so to me, Lyra is part of her journey, but it's Smendrick that makes her really change. That unicorn to female, to human female, is sort of symbolic of, you know, childhood to adulthood. Right. Yeah, you're so unconvinced. No, so, so no, no, it is. It's a growing up novel. So you start off innocent on a blank slate. You have your adventures. You meet people. You get taken prisoner by a circus. You know, the usual growing up stuff. <laughs> then you get hit by puberty or a magic, well, magic well-meaning spell. And you lose a little bit of yourself. Then you fall in love. Then you suffer loss. And then you decide what kind of person you're going to be. And you eventually retire to alone in your forest. And you live on with the memories of your adventuring days. And you're all... Melon Collie. I think that is kind of part, especially when you're young, is when you fall in love, you kind of forget who you were. That yes. happens to a lot of people. For sure. So, yeah, for me, that is kind of part of it, is I don't know who I am anymore. I just know I'm not me. So I can't imagine what it'd be like to have to go through this major transformation where you're not what you are. Like, See, every aspect of her is completely different. And while that's universal, that's also sad. Like, it's, it's bitter and sweet. You know, yes. that falling in love thing. And it's, so it's sad. And I, you know. I, well, but that's the whole thing about this. The whole story is bittersweet. Yes. <laughs> sniffle, sniffle. I don't know. Okay, so then we have, like, the idea is, like, sometimes the price of a happy ending will be your own personal happiness. Like, she, if she had stayed on Althea, she would have forgotten and she could have been happy. She would have been happy. She mm. wouldn't have known any difference. But she had that moment where she could choose. She had to change in order to save Lear because he does die. If yeah. she were human, she wouldn't have Lear at all. Because if she had stayed a human, the bull wouldn't have killed Lear because the bull wouldn't have cared about either but of them. the bull figured it out towards the end. Yeah, but still. No, but the bull figured it out. He was Gurgo after her anyway. Hmm. I still think changing back is the is what... Well, and then Lear decides to sacrifice himself to be Okay, but if she asks Mendrick, turn me back into a woman. He has his magic now. Yeah, well, so he could have. She's actually saying, "Don't do it," and then he does. So I, you know, not to get all consent here, but like, (laughs) um, (laughs) I want to stay. Don't let him change me back, Alakazam. You know, like for the greater good, I will make this decision for you. I okay. (laughs) Also, what people see in the world is more a reflection of themselves than what things truly are. Yeah, there's a lot of really good lines. A lot of that. That is, it's it's very resonating. Okay, man 
mankind measures their worth and value by their uh, capability to dominate and control the natural world. That's very English blood of you. Um, actually, <laughs> I will link to where I got this from because it was epically fun to read. Mankind measures their worth and value. I would all just say all the creatures do that. Sure. Okay. Especially the king, though, is what I'm saying. Like here, yes. this is definitely the king. He's going to dominate. And then that's how he gets his happiness. And that's whatever. He was not after power. He was not after wealth. He's not your traditional not after- Okay. He was after after happiness. A happiness based in the power control of others. So not after power like, I will make financial decisions that will rock the world, but power like, ha ha, I have trapped you all, and you will be here to entertain me, and you do not have your freedom. Also going to your consent theme. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Just saying! And then here's my bull, who will, like, keep you in your spot. He's your jailer, and it's it's very fitting that the unicorns, you know, send him into the sea yes. at the end, you know? And he uh-huh. knew it. He knew it was going to happen. Yeah. So I love that about fate. Yeah, but you can't escape your fate. You can't escape maybe your destiny. The yeah. destiny of the unicorn is to be in the forest alone, but now sad about it because she's gone okay, out but she's and experienced better for other the experience. things. Yes. You know what it is? It built character. <laughs> Daddy, I don't like this 10 mile hike. It builds character. Unicorn, I suffer love and loss and I'm sad, but you know, I'm back in my forest. Well, it's cool. You built character. <laughs> okay. All right. So was it worth our time? The book and the movie. Kalia, how do you feel? <laughs> I am very glad I read the book for all of its weirdness and... The way it was written, in some places, I kind of... I will tell you it dragged a little for me. Hmm. Um, I got... I think it was a little bit more than halfway. When they started getting close to the, the castle, or maybe it was when they actually got into the castle, it 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 started to really drag for me. And I found myself going, oh, I'll finish it later. I'll, I'll pick it up again you know, mm-hmm. tomorrow. So that's usually a sign. I, I definitely enjoyed it. I'm glad I read it, for sure. It's definitely worth your time. Yeah. The movie, I feel like... Well, I feel like it was it was geared towards kids in a way that the the book the book was geared towards I think everybody. Yeah. You know, it's it's a fairy tale. It's classic. It's meant for all ages and you can read it as an adult and you know, you can read it as a, a YA or whatever. The movie felt like it was definitely geared towards children and the adults who had read the book at, you know, people. You know, that kind of those were the two audiences. Mm-hmm. So I watched it with my daughter actually, who is 6 because I figured she was better at uh, telling me whether or not it was good for 6-year-olds than me who can't <laughs> really remember. So she is our special guest today, and here is her reaction to the book, or the movie. So we just watched The Lost Unicorn. What did you think? Scary, but I liked it. Yeah, scary, but you liked it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other thoughts? Well, um... Uh, Who's your favorite character? I liked the unicorn and the people who she was traveling with. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you like the ending? Yeah. Yeah? And the music? Well, at the beginning it made sense, but it ended in not because she was not the last unicorn anymore. That's very astute. You're right. She wasn't the last unicorn anymore. Now she's the first unicorn to have ever experienced love, huh? Yeah. Okay. So, I don't understand how it made sense in the end. That's true. They should have picked a different song for the end. Yeah. Or maybe had that song but just changed the words. Yep, that would have also made sense. Yeah. So. Okay, but overall you liked it? You're glad we watched it? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Hey, Mom, you could put this in the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Uh, 
wow, you're so smart. It's almost like I was recording this just so that I could use you in my Pages and Popcorn podcast. <laughs> Are you doing that, Mama? Maybe. <laughs> I think you are. I think you're right. So, so cute. There you have it, folks. The six-year-old said it was scary, but good. My daughter, who's not so quietly off in the corner right now listening to us record. So, yes, worth the book was worth uh, reading. The movie was worth watching. Um, I still loved it. I loved it as a child. And when I saw it again as an adult, it got better. So that was my reaction to it. Yeah, getting better. Better with age, for sure. I'm not really sold on some of the weird messaging that I felt like it had, but, you know, that's fine. It's a fairy tale. It had an ending. (laughs) (laughs) That was the thing that happened. So It had an ending? It had an ending. Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily... ending with faint praise. Yeah. (laughs) And it did not have an ending because it continued on in adventures, and this is actually, he has written additions after this. Yeah. I am excited to own this book. I'm mm-hmm. excited for Ella to read it when she gets older or for me to read it to her. Although she could probably read it now. Yeah. So totally worth it. And the movie, it definitely has some 1982 things. America, the band, doing the, the soundtrack of it is is painful to me, but that's cool. Whatevs. Aw. Okay. That, whatever. Whatever, Kaylee. You and your opinions. <laughs> I, I loved it. I still love it. It's one of those things that is part of my childhood. It's informed a lot of my adulthood. And it gets better with age. I love the themes. I love that they're not very explicit. You don't get the speech at the end of this is what the book is about. You see, Timmy, don't eat paint. Yeah, it wasn't here. <laughs> Okay, so let's I love that I got to talk about Star Trek twice in today's podcast, so that was pretty cool. Yes, indeed. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by not quite enough coffee, not quite enough feminist role models, but a lot of unicorns. And some cold medicine. And some cold medicine, yes. <laughs> we apologize at this point in the podcast for all of the <laughs> sniffling and coughing that happened. Hopefully I can edit out most of it. Please visit us at our website at pagesandpopcornpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter. Go to our Facebook page. Please rate and review us so that more people can find out about us so that some Someday we can have ads <laughs> or uh, maybe get Peter S. Beagle and other famous people to come on and talk about their, their stuff. And we're going to be setting up a Patreon at some point. We're just finalizing the little perks that you're going to get when you become a Patreon. So look for that in the next couple weeks. And we will be back in a week to let you know what our next book and movie combo will be. Thank you for listening. <laughs>